0: A man by the name of Balak, who was the king of Moab, had hired a prophet of sorts by the name of Balaam to come and, uh, at least he attempted to hire him, to come and curse uh, the nation of Israel. And uh, four times Balaam opened up his mouth in an attempt to uh, curse the nation of Israel, and four times all he did was pronounce uh, blessing upon blessing upon blessing uh, upon them finally Balak is just tired of, of the whole thing and uh, all of this blessing when he wants to curse these people that he sends Balaam away and in effect says get out of here I would have enriched you if you'd have just come and cursed like I said I would have given you plenty of money but now you're going to go back home uh, empty handed and so uh, it, it appears that at this point, Balaam is, is, sent, uh, he is sent home and how far he got toward home before he turned around and made certainly the biggest mistake of his life, we don't know. But as you read this account here in, in these chapters, uh, you know, 22 through 24 in the book of Numbers, you would look at Balaam and say he's one of the, you know, great heroes and prophets of the Old Testament. Why, why in the world when we turn to the New Testament... Is he uh, spoken of uh, so badly by uh, not only uh, the writers of the New Testament but even Jesus uh, himself? So you say, why has he got such a bum rap in the in the New Testament? In reading uh, the when we take all of these passages from the New Testament and the whole picture of what comes uh, gives us insight into this whole chapter and the in the nation of Israel a little bit later in the book of Numbers and then even into Deuteronomy. We're able to piece the big picture together and understand what in the world happened here that made Balaam the bad guy uh, that he was. Let me read you three uh, verses from the New Testament that speak uh, unflatteringly of Balaam. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, where uh, Peter is addressing the false teachers of that day. He said, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. And then here's Peter's description of him, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So this is a man who was greedy and covetous in the ministry, that was kind of at the core. That greed and covetousness is the sin of Balaam. And it's a sin in any child of God. It is certainly a sin that's going to come to the surface in any prophet or any leader in the body of Christ. Jude writes of of the false teachers in that day. He also cites Balaam's greed. He said, Woe to them, Jude 11, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Then we get to Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. And he writes concerning Balaam, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. So the sin of Balaam is covetousness. Here's his doctrine. Who, brought, who taught Balaam. Balak. In other words, what Balak is going to do to the children of Israel here in just a few minutes is something that he does under Balaam's instruction. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sanctified to idols and then to commit sexual immorality. So Jesus cites the council and the doctrine of Balaam. And that's what uh, Balaam's doctrine was, was in order to put a stumbling block in front of the children of of Israel, how to get them, he taught Balak how to get them to stumble in their relationship with the Lord by introducing idolatry, number one, into the lives of God's people. And then, uh, as Satan does through all of the ages, he's very effective at introducing idolatry into people's lives through the temptation of sexual immorality. So, here's kind of what uh, came down. Let me give you one other verse, though, to kind of help put everything together. Um, later on, in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, as Moses is uh, speaking to the leaders of the army that went out to destroy the Midianites, he said, look, these women have caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So here's what kind of came down. It seems like uh, Balaam, Balak says to Balaam, I hired you to come and curse these people. You haven't cursed them at all, but you've blessed them one time after another. I would have enriched you. Now get out of here and go home, you know, penniless. And because of Balaam's greed... Uh, for money. Uh, the, Balak wants to stumble these people and, and, uh, and, and cause them to become powerless before him and before his armies. And, and his first attempt to do that was to pronounce prophecies against them, to deal with them kind of in the, in the spiritual realm of things. But in essence, uh, it, it appears that what Balaam did was come to Balak and say, you're going about it all wrong. You will never defeat these people from without. And you've been a witness to this. I am 0 for 4 in trying to curse these people from the outside in. It doesn't work. Their God is too powerful. Their God travels with them. You will never ever be able to curse these people to bring defeat upon them from the outside in. But they do have a weakness They do have a vulnerability. Their God, though, an almighty God, and an all-powerful God, is also a jealous God. He will not share their hearts or their lives with idols or with the false gods of this world. And so if you can just take these Moabite women and get them to make themselves available sexually to these Jewish men, and then as the Jewish men, uh, are, get all heated up in the sexual involvement, get the Moabitess women to pull out their idols to, uh, Baal, and get them to worship Baal in order for this sexual activity to continue on, then they, then their God will be very displeased over that and their God will then judge them we cannot judge them but you can get their God to judge them if they will engage in idolatry so what he's saying about them and it's true of God's people in the Old Testament is true of us in the New Testament and that is you cannot defeat these people from without but you can get them to bring defeat upon themselves that's their only vulnerability Uh, they, They are the ones that determine their future, determine their destiny because of their God. But this is how you can defeat them. And then what Balak did, as we're going to see in just a moment, is he took the counsel of Balaam. He took these... Uh, you know, Moabitess uh, young women and they had no morals they worshipped the God of Baal the God of Baal was uh, a God, he was the God of nature he was the God of the crops And, uh, and one of the things that they would do in order to get him to bless their crops and make the land fruitful is that they would engage in sexual activity before these idols of Baal they believed that that would then excite him to sexual activity with some kind of celestial God up there, and then as a result of that, you know, kind of God sex would then produce a a fertility fertility for the land. So these people are not used, they have no... Uh, you know, feelings about sexual purity. They would do anything their God asked them to do. Their God was an immoral God. Their God, they believed, got excited by watching other people. I mean, he's he's into pornography. And uh, so this is the whole deal that they're in. So Balak has no problem uh, ordering these young girls to go in and do this, and the girls have no problem uh, doing that at all. It it really gets you uh, scared. Uh, I mean, not... It's kind of a weird... I'm, I'm thinking about whether I should say this. Well, I don't like where we're going sexually in this country. Obviously not for a long time. Do you know, when I was a kid, oof, yeah, I'm doing it. I mean, at least you had to fight a culture that, that still had, was still clinging, however, you know, tenuously, to, uh, to a, a, a sense of, of uh, you know, the sexual relationship being reserved for marriage, the godly standard related to these things. And I'll tell you, pastors who are pastoring today will tell you to a person that that does not characterize today's generation like it did in earlier generations they don 't even know that sex outside of marriage in in a large degree is is wrong that it 's ungodly that multiple partners in the course of your life there 's no stigma attached to this stuff anymore, so we see the culture moving uh, in the direction of where these young ladies were as it relates to the worship of of baal and and so He takes and he heeds the counsel, and it's going to be very, very effective, as we'll see now. Now, Israel remained in the... Oh, let me say one other thing about this. Now, remember, God never ever... When He warns us, He never wastes His breath, does He? I've never known Him to warn me about something, except that that something was coming down the road real soon in my life. He doesn't waste words. And I, I, I when we get into heaven, I don't think we're going to find God terribly chatty. So when he talks, there's a reason for it. Remember God spoke to Balaam and he said to Balaam, he said, go and speak and don't say anything other than what I put in your mouth. And Balaam violates that in giving this counsel to Balak. And this is why he ends up getting into trouble. He would have been fine, the children of Israel would have been fine if he had simply heeded that. Now Israel remained in the Acacia Grove. And this is very, very significant because the mention of this location where this event occurs indicates that they are right on the other side of the promised land. They're right on the other side of Jericho where they're going to go in and they're going to conquer the land of, uh, of, of Israel there. So there they are. They're right on the border after 40 years. I mean, they, uh, they're just about to experience what they've been waiting for, the greatest event in their life, and that's the moment that Satan attacks them. I, it is very interesting, and I'm sure it is uh, the testimony of, of many of you. There are times... I, you know, they say about spiritual warfare and the attack of the enemy that it's always going on in one of three phases. We're either uh, in a trial or we're coming out of a trial or we're going into a trial. And I think much can be said the same way of, of spiritual warfare. I mean, it's just, it seems like the longer you go that it's always going on. It's just what form is it, is it taking in our lives at the moment. And one of the things that, one of the areas that have to really be careful about and and be alert to related to spiritual warfare is how often Satan will attack just before a great blessing in your life. Just before God has put this piece in place, this piece in place. He's moved everything 40 years. All got you right there where, you know, he's just going to open up door number two in no time at all. And then the devil comes in right at that moment, just to try and rip us off at the last uh, possible moment. And I think that very often it's kind of a settled thing in our spirit, where that attack will come, it will be so weird, it'll be so strong, things seem to be going okay, I haven't opened any doors to them or anything like that, and then a lot of times we'll just immediately think, God must be doing something really good right now that is right around the corner because Satan is coming in real strong. And so that's that's kind of the the place of what was, was happening here. And the people began to commit harlotry, sexual immorality with the women of Moab and they invited the people that is the children of israel to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate so the jews just come right in out of their camp and all the holiness of god and all they come into the uh, the camp and all of of the children of of Israel, they begin to uh, the, get involved with the sacrifices to, the, to Baal. The people were eating this food that was sacrificed to him, and then here it is they bowed down to their gods. God has been so faithful to them. For so long, they're right on the edge of this great thing. And then they do this. And so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. I won't even get into Some of you think I've been too graphic related to Baal already. I won't even get into it any further. And here are the children of Israel, they've united themselves with a worship of, it was basically the deification of, of sex. And this was the response of God. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. I think it's very important too, since we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly uh, sexually immoral, that I think it's important for us as men to realize the amount, the number of women that God has at His disposal, or that Satan has at his disposal to draw you into sexual immorality. You don't even have to be good looking. You don't have to work out. You don't have to do anything. I remember one time listening to a pastor and he was warning pastors on this very issue. And and, and and talking about this thing and, and he said, I mean, here you are. Uh, talking to a group, apparently all, he felt we were all aging, we are all, we're all aging, but he says, why do you think that young woman is so attracted to you now that you've put on 50 pounds and you're going bald? It isn't physical. So, so what's going on there? And to realize that the devil has a lot of people at his disposal. To bring our way, to try and pull us away from God's call upon our lives. See the devil behind the temptation. See the devil behind the body, behind the face. And the same thing goes for women too. The devil has all kinds of men to use to try and pull you away from God's call upon your lives. And he's very effective in using the the sexual relationship to set us up for a a fall. So they engage in this uh, idolatry and and join in the worship of Baal of Peor. They did it willingly, and then God's reaction, the anger of the Lord, was aroused against Uh, Israel, this idolatry, this sexual immorality among his people made God righteously angry. This wasn't just wrong in his eyes. This was an affront to his grace, how good he had been to them for all those years. And the bigger issue of all is that they are jeopardizing his plan for the salvation of the whole world through them as a people, through their sexual lust. And here you have a group of men who are looking and saying, God's plan, I don't care about God's plan, about God's purposes. And they elevate their sexual lust and desire above the purposes of God for their lives. And in the case right here, a lot of people right down in history into this room were going to be affected if everyone did what a considerable number of these Jewish men did among the children of Israel. I was talking with uh, one of the women in our fellowship last couple weeks on Sunday morning. She asked me, she said, she said, do you know, I think she had either read it or heard it, from somewhere, but she said, "Do you know where the, the greatest move of God's Spirit in terms of people coming to know the Lord is occurring today?" And I said, "No, I, said, I think South America. A lot's going everywhere in the whole world. So much is going. So many people are coming to know the Lord. I think it's a very very good chance. It's a last day's pull of people. Come in, get into the ark, man. Get into the salvation that's found in Christ." She said, "They said." that it was in uh, Asia and in Africa. I don't dispute it. Tremendous things are going on in, in Asia and in, in Africa. Maybe you read related to the Olympics that are coming to China, and the Chinese government is so um, anxious on a lot of fronts, but one of the things they're anxious about is the Christians that are in the, in the country. Uh, somehow Christians from our country are going to go over there and then somehow whatever might happen. And they, at, they estimated conservatively in a newspaper article I read there's over 150 million Christians in China. And you pay a price to be Christian over there, so probably talking about the real deal, probably many, many times more than, than that. And so, uh, but she was excited about this because her family, and on, on her husband's side, had ministered in China, and the effects of the work that they had done decades before now coming to fruit at this this time in in china and and in asia it 's the same thing with us. You have no idea. I was got a chance to speak at a, a conference here recently and uh, talking a, a little bit about an illustration where back in one thousand nine hundred and eighty Two or eighty-three or eighty-four, somewhere right in there, someone had given me a tape. I was teaching a home Bible study in Fairfield, California, and one of the, air, the airmen on the, the base at Travis Air Force Base, he gave me a tape to listen to about, from a guy I had never heard before at all. It was his in, in, pastor, Raw Reese, and Calvary Chapel down in Southern California, and he was teaching on a particular chapter. I listened to that tape. I've never forgotten the content of that tape to this day. He has no idea where that tape went. He has no idea that it ended up in my hands. He has no idea that God gave life to that message of that tape and and that it abides in me today. We don't know what God is going to do with us, how God is going to use us, how things that we're not even going to see in this life that are going to endure on for generations uh, after us. God's call upon our lives is worth protecting. And not only for our own sake, but the sake of those that are going to follow us. And, and so they're jeopardizing this, this whole plan of God, the elevating of their sexual appetites over all of that. And so the Lord then spoke to Moses in verse 4, and he instructed him on what to do related to this. And he said, take all of the leaders of the people... So the leaders of the different tribes and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And so you have a very measured, very disciplined judgment by God. He calls upon the leaders of the tribes who would know their tribes very, very well, know who had engaged in this activity, brought sin into the camp, and he tells them, I want these leaders to go out and mete out justice and judgment on God's behalf related to this. God, unmistakably, no uncertain terms, he says, I want this influence removed from among my people. It's an affront to me, but it's also a danger to my plan. And so he calls them uh, to do that. Now, when it talks about hanging them out in the sun, they would have probably been stoned to death. And then their dead bodies hung out as, as an example. So the, the, the guilty ringleaders were to be executed and then hung out as an example. And so Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And I want you to notice that little phrase every one of you, every one of those leaders in, that, in, the, in the nation of Israel had a responsibility for the purity among, among the children of Israel. That wasn't just Moses' job, that wasn't just Eliezer's job, who is now the new high priest. That was everybody's responsibility. Everybody had a stake in that. Do you realize that you have a stake and you have a part in assuring the purity of the body of Christ and of this local church, not only as it relates to your own, our own purity in walking with the Lord, but as it relates to the body of Christ itself, I can't tell you how many uh, times, the local church itself, I can't tell you how many times over the years someone will come to me and they'll say, Well, you know, um, there's a person that goes to your church and, uh, and, and it's another person that goes to this church that comes to me. There's a person that goes uh, to the church here, they're ripping people off like crazy in the community. They're one of the most dishonest business people that you could know in their field in the community. They are known for it, or they're a sexually immoral person. They are sleeping with everyone that they can sleep with, and they're going to this church. And, and I'll say, well, how, how long have you known about this? Oh, I've known about this for months or for years and then, then pretty soon in the community, they look around and they say, well, so-and-so goes over to that church, and we know about them in private, and we know what kind of a life that they're living and all, and so, wow, I would never go to that church. They must have a terrible standard in, in terms of their seriousness related to the Word of God. And everyone's reputation is sullied by it. And I would just simply ask people, would you please go to that person, Matthew chapter 18, Confront them one-on-one with what you know. And call on them yourself to repent of their sin or to never come back here. Then if they don't heed you, you bring it then to me. And that's the way that it works. So if you have a business partner or you have a person that you're working with is vocal about being a Christian and these things and they're ripping people off, you have the responsibility to talk to them and say, where do you get that from the Bible? And you are, you are dragging God's name and the name of your church and God's people through the mud by what you're doing. We all have a stake in the purity of, of the body of Christ. Every one of you. Kill his men. Now, we don't kill people, so I I draw the line there. But you know what I'm saying. Kill his men who were drawn, uh, who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So here's the picture. They're in the middle of the camp. The tabernacle is a stone's throw away. Everybody can see it. And you got Moses there. You've got the high priest there, Eliezer, you've got Phineas there, you've got a whole group of the children of Israel. Not everyone's engaging in this sin among God's people. And they're weeping. What's happened to us? We've right, come right to the edge of the border. And then here these men have done this, and they've introduced this into, our, into the camp, and they're praying, and they're, their heart is broken, and they're praying to God there, as close as they can get to Him, there at the tabernacle. And while they're doing it, a guy's got a Midian, Woman, and he's almost got to bump him out of the way to get her into his tent. That's how bold this guy is. That's, that's the power. Sin can, can get over a person. And when Phineas, verse 7, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. So he's the grandson of Aaron. When he saw that, he rose from among the congregation And he took a javelin in his hand, and he went in after the man of Israel into his tent, and he thrust them both through. That he could do it with one thrust indicates the intimacy of the situation. The man of Israel and the woman threw her body. And so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. Testimony to the effectiveness of the doctrine of Balaam. You cannot defeat them from without, but if you can get them to introduce sin into their own life, then they can bring defeat upon themselves. They couldn't, as Balaam comes and tries to curse these people, He's 0 for 4. He couldn't even get one person in the camp of Israel to get the stomach flu. But this thing, this methodology, wow, 24,000 people dead. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar." The son of Aaron the priest has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was, and notice this, zealous with my zeal. God loved the zeal of Phinehas in this place. And he said, in essence, he's saying, that's what I would have done in the situation. This man had a zeal for the holiness of my people and my body. I hope we have a zeal for the things of God. The Bible talks about being zealous for Him. But then notice the next two words. Because He was, and then here it is, zealous with my zeal. And then more important than even that, the next two words, among them. To be zealous for holiness even in the context of God's people. Even when we encounter it, maybe especially when we encounter it among God's people. doesn't mean we become sin sniffers and that we're looking for every kind of fault and all, but where we see protracted, unrepented of sin and engage ourselves in it. And so because of him, he, because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. How long that plague would have gone on and just... Whew, going right to the camp of Israel, and how many would have ended up dead, we don't know. But Phineas, because of his zeal, he stepped forward and, and brought an end uh, to that plague, and really gave God a reason to bring it to an end. And therefore, here is the reward for Phineas' service, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So God said concerning Phineas, Phineas was a grandson of Aaron. Aaron, the first high priest, is dead. Uh, Phineas was the son of the second high priest, Eleazar. And what God is saying now is, I want the priesthood not to go through any other grandson of Aaron or any other son of Eliezer I want the priesthood to go through this man. What does it tell us? It speaks to us of the importance of zeal for the things of God even in the context of God's people. I don't think anyone will survive, even in the body of Christ, even in a Christian church. Certainly not as a leader who does not have a zeal for the things of God, an obedience to God's word, and a zeal for his, his standard. That's what God was rewarding. He says, I want a zeal for the things of me in, in my priests. And so he blesses him in this way. Now the name of the Israelite who was killed, um, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's house, among the Simeonites. And so he, is, he comes from a, uh, the family of a leader among the tribe of Simeon. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. Uh, he was head of the people of a father's house in Midian. Now this tells you a little bit about uh, Phineas too. Phineas was no respecter of persons in terms of judgment. Oh boy, I mean, it's the daughter of one of the grand poobahs among the Midianites and I don't want to create any kind of a problem. Nope. So we're going we're to cleanse this camp of this kind of nonsense and bring an end to this, the judgment that has come upon God's people because of it. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister, who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. And so they, they will ultimately attack and defeat the Midianites. It's recorded in chapter 31. We'll get to it in a year. And, uh, so, but basically what he's telling them is, uh, he's telling the children of Israel, I want you to burn every bridge. I, you know, no experience in life, and, and failure is a part of, of our Christian life. Nobody's perfect but God. But no, no experience is a complete loss that we learn something from. But it is important when we fall in areas and we fail in areas to then burn the bridges that need to be burned to ever have that repeating in our lives. And that's kind of what's going to happen here. He wants this taken care of. I think another thing that that the Lord does, and He's so faithful to work everything together for good, isn't He? There's a promise, right, in the Bible, so I, I have a firm grasp of the obvious. But He takes, and He's going to take this experience... That they've had, and it's been a very terrible experience. But he's educated the entire camp of Israel about when you go into that land and you go to conquer that land. I am not kidding with you when I tell you don't intermarry with those people and don't engage in the worship of the things that they worship. So he uses it to really drive home uh, a point uh, to them. Now, in in chapter 26, uh, he, we've got kind of a, uh, from here to the rest of the book, we've kind of got God going to do some final preparations before he takes this second generation of the children of Israel into the promised land. So earlier, 40 years earlier, you remember, uh, earlier in the book, he had called the children of Israel and uh, he had told Moses, I want you to number the tribes of Israel. I want to know what the numbers of in every tribe of all of the men who are 20 years and, uh, and above so that I can know what the size of the army is, so to speak. So that, Because they're going to go in and, they're, and as an army, they're going to conquer the land. So they did the numbering 40 years earlier, but that whole generation has, has died off. And it's interesting when you, well, let's read verse one. And it came to pass after the plague. You could circle that after the plague in your mind, because with that plague, there came an end of that entire previous generation, except for Joshua, Caleb and Moses. So now the first generation is completely gone. The second generation that has been wandering for the 40 years, now they're ready to go into the land, so they need to renumber the people. And so that's what's going on here. The numbering of the people is twofold reason for it. Number one, to again establish the, the, numerically the size of the army that they have, the number of men over the age of 20, and then number two, based upon the size of that population among the different tribes, they would then, that would determine the size of the portion of land that would be allotted to them. When they go into the promised land, and conquer it. God has already uh, had, has already determined what tribe is going to have what portion of the land. He establishes that numerically. That's not going to have any bearing on it. God is going to put them where He wants to put them. But then, having put them in either the north, the south, the east, or the west. Then how big their borders are going to be in terms of, you know, coming upon the borders of another tribe, that will be established by what their numbers are and thus their ability to uh, conquer that land and hold on to that land. And so it came to pass after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above by their fathers' houses, all who are able to go to war. So again, we're going to number to see what the size of, of the military is that you can field. And so Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with him in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and above, just as the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel who came out of the land of Israel. So we're going to take a new census just like we did 40 years earlier and then here is the census the results of that census in in verse 5 Reuben was the firstborn of Israel the children of Reuben were i'm i'm not going to inflict pain upon you by trying to pronounce all of these names but you notice as you get down into verse 7, these are the families. So the first tribe that's, that's numbered is the tribe of Reuben. These are the families of the Reubenites. Those who were numbered of them were 43,730. Their prior number was 46,500. So over the course of... Forty years, they have a a decline of 2,770. Verse 12, there is the second tribe that is mentioned, the sons of Simeon. And you notice in verse 14, these are the families of the Simeonites uh, and and the numbering 22,200. Now their prior number was 59,300. They have a net loss of thirty-seven thousand. 100 people, which causes us to believe that the uh, overwhelming majority of the 24,000 people who died in the plague, uh, and, and then the some other number of people that were killed by the leaders within the camp, independent of the plague, that... Uh, this particular plague was highly concentrated in the tribe of Simeon. And so, because there's no other explanation for so dramatic a, a, a drop. Verse 15, the sons of Gad, uh, at the time of the numbering in verse 18, they numbered here 40,500. Previously, uh, they were 45. Uh, 40,500, previously 45,650, so a negative 5,150. This is for the accountants in the fellowship. God bless you. The sons of Judah, verse 19, uh, as we jump down to verse 22, at this point in time, they were numbered 76,500. And so their prior number was 74,600. So we got a plus of 1,900. The sons of Issachar, verse 23, the time, at this point their numbers were, at the end of verse 25, 64,300. Prior they were 54,400. So we've just a hundred under 10,000 in, in the plus. The sons of Zebulun, verse 26... Notice in the end of verse 27, they were numbered at 60,500. Prior was 57,400, so we've got a plus of 3,100. Verse 28, the sons of Joseph, and verse 29, very specifically, the sons of Manasseh from that family. And uh, you notice at the end of verse 34, they now numbered 52,700. Prior uh, to this, they were 32,200, so we got a plus 20,500. And so this is the greatest increase among any of the tribes, was the tribe of Manasseh. Then verse 35, the tribe of Ephraim, as you go down there into verse 37, they numbered at this time 32,500. Prior, they were 40,500, so we've got a, uh, a negative 8,000. Benjamin, verse 38, uh, as you look at the end of verse 54, or 41 rather, I we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, okay? Verse 41, they numbered at this point in time 45,600. Previously, they were 35,400, so plus 10,200. The uh, tribe of Dan, verse 42, notice at the end of verse 43, they numbered now 64,400. Previously, they were 62,700, so plus 1,700. And then in verse uh, 44, we see the sons of Asher, the tribe of Asher. And uh, at the end of uh, verse 47, we see they numbered 53,400. Previously, 40 years earlier, 48. Uh, 1,500, so a plus 4,900. Verse 48, the sons of Naphtali, that tribe, notice at the end of verse 50, they numbered now 45,400. Previously, 53,400, so a negative 8,000 there. And then here's the total, verse 51, for those of you who like the bottom line. Uh, we did the rest of it. For those of you who can't, uh, you don't like a bottom line until you know how you got there. So we're, we're trying to please everybody here tonight. Is everybody pleased? Okay. It's very lukewarm. I hope it got on the tape. Um, those who were, uh, these are those who were numbered of the children of Israel Six hundred and one thousand seven hundred and thirty, and so um, that was uh, that number was one thousand eight hundred and twenty less than the first numbering forty years earlier. So uh, about the same, and so we see. The, even the numbering of things is a witness to, is a witness to, number one, God's grace to them for 40 years in that wilderness. He kept them numerically the same. But in keeping them largely numerically the same, it is a testimony to the fact that there is no, um, increase, there is no fruitfulness in a life of living in the wilderness living the Christian life that is short of appropriating the uh, promises of God in our lives, going into those promises, possessing those promises, a failure to do that leads to a life that you're, I'm still a child of God, I'm still on the way uh, to heaven, but there's nothing dramatic about it, nothing that you know, speaks of God about such a life. It's just kind of... Uh, you know, holding my own, which is when a person is living a life of kind of kind of holding their own, then there's no witness of the spirit. It's a supernatural life that gets the attention of people and to realize there's something about their life that's different than uh, other lives. And look how God has blessed them. Look at the fruit and and, and blessings of their life that then gets people to realize that God is being allowed to be fully engaged in in our lives. And so they didn't do bad. They didn't do good. That's what life in the wilderness uh, looks like. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, to these the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. And so these tribes, the land was going to be divided among these twelve tribes. And then as we saw, I mentioned before, to a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who are numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. And, and they would determine God's will by the casting of lots. God, uh, they trusted him to direct the lots in, in, in getting the people to have the land that, that God wanted them to have. So, where, again, where they ended up in the land, uh, God is saying that he would determine the size of the land, their population would determine. But the land shall be divided, verse 55, by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers, according to the lot. Uh, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and smaller. And these are those who are numbered of the Levites according to their families. So the Levites, the tribe of Levi, is numbered separately from the, children, uh, the other tribes of Israel for a couple of reasons. Number one, they were not going to be a part of the army. Uh, they, their entire focus was directed upon the spiritual uh, health of the nation. And number two, they were not going to inherit any land. They would, they would inherit uh, Levitical cities, but not land the way the other tribes would. And so they're in kind of a different uh, a different category. And so they come into a different place in the numbering in the chapter. So these are those who were numbered of the Levites according to their families. Of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites. Of Kohath, the family of the Kohathites. Of Merari, the family of the Merarites. These are the families of the Levites, the family of the Libnites, the family of the Hebronites, the family of the Malites, the family of the Mushites, and the family of the and Kohath begot Amram, and the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt, and to Amram she bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. So you want to know a little bit about the lineage of Moses, it's right there uh, in, as a Levite, it's right here in the, in the history of, of the tribe of, of Levi. Without this passage, we wouldn't know the names of Moses' um, parents. To Aaron was born Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar, uh, and Nadab and Abihu died when they offered profane fire before the Lord. Now those who were numbered of them, so here's the numbering of the the tribe of Israel at this point in time, were 23,000. And so uh, 40 years earlier, they numbered 22,000, so a net gain uh, of of 1,000 in that tribe. They were numbered a little bit differently than the other tribes. The other tribes were numbered from the age uh, males, the age 20 and above here, and the numbering of the Levites, it was every male numbered from a month Old and above, for they were not numbered among the other children of Israel, because there was no inheritance given to them among the children of Israel. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest, who numbered the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho. But among these uh, there were not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And then notice that next word. It's an important one. So there was not left a man of them, except Caleb, the son of uh, Jephthah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So God had promised that entire generation was going to die off, and only Joshua and Caleb would would survive it and, and enter into the land. God is absolutely faithful in His promises, promised to bless us in his word, but he is also unerringly faithful in in his word as it relates to judgment. And so it came to pass, the key is to be on the right side of the things of God so that we can experience his faithfulness as it relates to blessing and not uh, to judgment. So we'll stop there and we'll get a chance to enjoy communion tonight. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Let me say, let me say uh, one thing as we leave this whole incident at um, Baal of Peor, with the sexual immorality of God's people, with with the the women of, of Midian, and the whole, you know, that whole mess of things. Here's the straight betwixt two that I find myself in continually as a pastor and a teacher of the Word of God. I'm like everybody else. Every single one of us is tempted by numerous things in this world. If if any man thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. I remember listening to a a pastor teach many, many years ago, and he said, he he exhorted us as, as pastors, and he said, you better teach above your experience I'm not saying I'm engaged in the sin of Baal of Peor, but to take the Word of God and to declare it, my responsibility is to lay out the high standard, not to bring it down because that's not what I'm called to do. Uh, we lay the standard out, what God will allow us, the standard He will allow us to live by His Holy Spirit, and then a person has to seek God individually, surrender to God individually, to determine for themselves how much of this life that God describes in His Word any of us will will uh, um, uh, appropriate and, and, and experience. But, the, but because we do live in a nation that is very, very sexually immoral, and, uh, and in a world that is very, very sexually immoral, I don't want anybody to sit here that comes from that kind of a background, however, however long ago or however recently, to feel bad about that. I want, I want the strength of the Word to hit our lives. And I want us to... Um, I want it to cleanse us. I want it to to purge us. And I want it to equip us. But I know that you can talk about some of these things and our backgrounds can kind of flash up before us and we begin to think that we're extraordinarily terrible. That's not my intent in any way to condemn anyone. Now, if a person's sitting here tonight and you are present tense, actively unrepentant, in engaging in willful sin, and you call yourself a Christian, Um, I'm not talking to you at all right now. Uh, You're another category. You need to repent tonight. And you certainly need to repent before you partake of the symbols of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood that was broken and shed for you to live a different kind of life in this world. That's a very high price that was paid for us, not just to be saved, but to live a life of freedom to his glory. So I don't want anybody feeling like oh, I'm the worst person in the whole world because of, of this, and and uh, you know and you know you bring this up and the whole thing and it tweaks all these things inside of me. That's not what I'm in, intending to do, and I you know you hit it all the time because you come in and you say I got to lay out the standard of this word, and I know that this is going, this is not going to be fun for some people in, in the room. But it's the way that it is. And we don't God didn't ask me to be a mediator related to the Word of God. So that's my point here on things. God forgives, He gives us a fresh start. We need to take holiness seriously in our lives tonight and and from this moment forward, because we have tonight and we have this moment forward in our walk with the Lord. In first Corinthians chapter um, 11. Let me just read with me from verse 23 Where Paul writes to the church at Corinth And he said For I received from the Lord That which I also delivered to you And here's, here's what uh, he, he had received And he delivered to them That the Lord Jesus And this is very important On the same night he was betrayed Ever had anybody do anything wrong to you? <laughs> no, me either But he took bread, now we all know betrayal. On the same night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is saying, don't forget about me in this Christian life. It's about me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason there are many weak and sick among you, and many who sleep, they've died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. The Christians in the church at Corinth. Now you think about that. You've got a local church in Corinth where God is taking people out he's taking people home to heaven because they are not discerning his body and not discerning his body doesn't mean that you know we are you know, we have some sin in our past or recent or distant past and we partake of the elements uh, that represent his body and and we're, we're, you know, that's uh, what it's talking about. What it's talking about is it is ignoring the price that Jesus Christ paid for the creation, the existence of this thing called the body of Christ. Are you happy there's a body of Christ in the world tonight? For all of our problems, we are...